Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Mixed signals from the economy, from earnings, but not from President Biden. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on whether we're headed for a recession after all. The odds on that happening sometime in the next uh, 12 months, I think, are pretty good, perhaps 70 percent. Former IBM head Sam Palmasano on next steps for generative AI. Business leaders and companies can show the way. They could establish the guardrails. And Steve Rattner of Willett Advisors on how to invest in China. On the plus side, I would say China's back. The flip side of it is that clearly they're a bit off balance. Global Wall Street spent the week pouring over a lot of data, looking for a signal in all of that noise. Big tech earnings surprised to the upside. They have had such large gains in this sector, not even the sector as a whole, but these fang names. But most of the talk was about artificial intelligence and what it could mean for the tech industry, and for that matter, for us all. AI is is bigger than any single company or any single industry or indeed any single country. And after all those encouraging earnings last week from the big banks, we learned just how bad things had gotten for Credit Suisse before UBS came to the rescue. In three to four years' time, I like to see the employees of the combined organization, uh, this country, our clients, to be very proud to be associated with UBS. And then, at the very end of the week, reports came that the FDIC will put First Republic Bank Corp into receivership. 
saying the time had run out for a private solution. President Biden was unambiguous in telling us that indeed he would like another four years in the White House. Let's finish this job. There's nothing that we cannot do if we do it together. And economic numbers pointed in both directions, with home prices and sales up. If housing comes back, does that give the consumer another boost? Consumer confidence down. The consumer confidence number really interesting for April. So overall, it falls a touch. And GDP numbers out Thursday mixed as well, slowing in the first quarter, but not as much as some had feared. Then on Friday, we got consumer spending numbers and the all-important employment cost index showing spending was flat while the ECI moved up higher than expected, 1.2% for the first quarter. Markets took it all pretty much in stride with the yield on the 10-year down about 13 basis points for the week, ending up at 3.439, while equities held up nicely. The Nasdaq was up almost 1.4% for the week, while the S&P 500 was up almost 9 tenths of a percent, leaving it at 4169 or about 94 points above the median of where our L's projected will end the year. One of those prominent of the L's, Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley, is one of our most bearish. He's projecting a year end of about 3,900. And this week, he noted a shift. This is according to Mike. While macro news has taken a larger focus in recent weeks, the reporting season has the potential to refocus investors' attention on equity fundamentals. To take us through the week in the markets, we welcome now Greg Peters, PGM, co-CIO for Fixed Income, and Mona Mahajan. He, she is Edward Jones, senior investment strategist. Welcome both of you back to Wall Street Week. So Mona, let me start with you. What about what Mike Wilson had to say? Are we looking at fundamentals now more than some of the macro factors we have been? Yeah, you know, look, I think Mike got it right this week. Uh, certainly, markets were driven by those earnings results, and really the earnings results from the mega cap technology names. And as you noted, they surprised, and they surprised to the upside. And that wasn't only earnings beats. A lot of them are now showing that their business models are resilient, uh, even through economic swings. And also, they are showing off a little bit of their cash piles. Uh, we saw a couple of very big share buyback programs announced this week as well. Um, and what we saw at the end of the week, really, equity markets were bullish. They were positive for the week. And that came even despite softer than expected GDP data, inflation data that might be a little bit stickier than some might have hoped for. So generally, for the last couple of weeks, it certainly has been the earnings story driving markets and really driving those growth sectors in particular. But as we look towards the weeks ahead, especially next week when the Fed becomes more in focus again, uh, and as the economy and inflation continues to remain to the forefront, I think we'll see a swing from earnings and uh, equity fundamentals to macro picture becoming more in focus in the weeks ahead as well. So but certainly Greg, right for this week. Greg, what's bond, uh, driving the fixed income markets? It is inflation, the economy, and what is the Fed going to do about it? So uh, we're on knife's edge in fixed income, whether it's a recession or a soft landing. There's talk of stagflation still, of course. Um, and the data are so all over the place and dispersed that you can basically draw a narrative or a conclusion from, you know, the data in any way you want. Well, so I'm curious about that because the 10-year yield, uh, at least to my eye, has not been going much of anywhere anytime soon. Is that because people are happy with where it is or it's because they can't just decide? Any way they look, it could go either way. They just can't tell. Yeah, and so that masks, you know, what's underneath. And so what we're seeing, though, on an intraday basis, uh, interweek, inter you know, uh, the, the, uh, the moves are pretty extreme. So fixed income volatility remains really, really high. So, yes, the 10-year is virtually unchanged this month of April. But the swings are, are pretty substantial. 
And Mona, what about in the equity markets? What are we seeing? The VIX is pretty subdued, is it not? Yeah, you know, it really is one of the, the key stories that has emerged over the last few weeks, which is that that volatility index, some call it the Wall Street fear gauge, has been very subdued. In fact, down about 25% year to date, um, which shows a bit of complacency from the markets uh, and perhaps a little bit of investors hiding out. You know, keep in mind, cash and cash equivalents are offering attractive yields. So if investors do want to uh, wait for better opportunities, they certainly have an alternative now uh, that is a pretty attractive alternative. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, some of the catalysts that were supposed to emerge early on this year, including earnings, including the Fed potentially next week, and including this economic downturn, really haven't yet surprised in any material way. And so I do think uh, markets have yet to see a meaningful catalyst. Perhaps the Fed pause that may be on the horizon will be that one. Well, well, well Mona, what about the possibility of recession? Because we still have a lot of economists saying that it's more likely than that, perhaps as high as 70% likelihood. I don't think I can see that very much in the equity markets. So do the equity markets know something the economists don't? Or do the economists know something maybe the equity markets don't? Yeah, you know, look, I think this recession that is on the horizon is probably one of the worst kept secrets that's out there among economists and investors. Uh, everybody has been talking about it. The deceleration we saw this this past week in first quarter GDP um, has shown a slowdown from 3.2% in Q3, 2.6% in uh, Q4 of last year, this, this quarter 1.1%. So we're seeing this downward trajectory. The consumer is still holding up. But if you look at forecasts for Q3 and Q4 of this year, we are in fact seeing negative negative and slightly negative uh, annualized growth rates. So in our view, this idea that a mild recession is on the horizon is very likely still, probably still a base case scenario. And markets won't be able to completely ignore that. Um, but keep in mind, we did put in a lot of work to the downside over the last 15 months or so. The S&P went down almost 25% peak to trough. Uh, we don't see a repeat of that happening, even if we have a mild recession ahead. So any period of volatility, consolidation, pullback, um, we think could provide some opportunities for investors as they look past this bear market and perhaps towards a recovery period ahead. Greg, what about the bond markets? Because, because we got a lot of economic data out this week and it showed sort of slowing growth perhaps, but inflation is not going away. It may be headed in the right direction, it's not going away. Are the bond markets prepared for the possibility of the Fed even past May. No, in fact, the market's pricing in the opposite, right? They're pricing in rate cuts in the back uh, end of this year. And to me, that is, you know, the risk markets are ignoring that if the Fed cuts, that means we are into a recession or a much weaker period. But the binding constraint continues to be inflation. And I think we're in a very different environment. We've been so accustomed to the Fed coming to the rescue. And it's much easier to do that when they're operating below that 2% level. When they're above, and they're pretty meaningful above, their degrees of freedom really, really get much tighter. So I think the markets are miscalibrating what the Fed can do. Uh, and the opposite is also true, David, where if the numbers continue to assert themselves on the inflation side, there's more work to do. And the markets have been consistently wrong <laughs> on the uh, level of inflation uh, and what the Fed's response function is. Yeah, as has the Fed quite often yeah. been wrong, as best I can tell. Greg Peters of PGM and Mona Mahajan of Edward Jones. We're going to be staying with us as we turn to what a failed First Republic could mean for the markets. That's next on Wall Street Week. We're on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The saga of American banks continued this week with news that First Republic is headed, apparently, for receivership. To talk about what that could mean for the markets, Mona Mahajan of Edward Jones and Greg Peters of PGM are still with us. So, Greg, let me turn to you first. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on with First Republic. Let's assume it does go into receivership, as reports right now say it will. What does that mean for the markets as a practical matter? I think what it means is that the market will continue to search for the next weakest link. And so First Republic has been very much in the market you know, the past month or so, so it's not a complete and utter surprise. But the markets are really looking to suss out the weak players to see whether it's systemic or not. But I think the real issue on the table is how broad is the pullback in lending on the regional and community bank side? And what influence does that have on, on the market and the economy? And you know, that contraction of credit is really meaningful because it goes to the small and medium-sized businesses, which, quite frankly, are the lifeblood of the economy and the labor market. So, Mona, what does it mean potentially for equities? In fact, we continue to contract on the credit side because the banks are under control, under, under yeah. stress, and they get more and more conservative as a practical matter. Yeah, you know, it certainly has been interesting on equities, of course. Um, financials have had some difficulty this year, and in fact, uh, still down year-to-date, one of the worst-performing sectors on the S&P 500. Um, and part of that, of course, is the banking turmoil we've seen over the last month. And now with First Republic coming back to the forefront, really the question to Greg's point is, is there another uh, shoe to drop after First Republic? And, and market uncertainty, of course, is never welcomed by investors. Um, but what we would say is, one, the, the bank tightening of credit, and that has actually had started even prior to the March turmoil. We started to see uh, metrics like the Senior Loan Officer Survey starting to show meaningful tightening. So what that means is banks will make it harder for uh, consumers and corporations to get loans. Now that has a, that's a double-edged sword. On one side, yes, economic activity will cool and the economic
economic growth prospects look worse. But on the other hand, that inflationary story we've been talking about um, could see you know, a marginally uh, less pressure on inflation, inflation moderating even further because banks are pulling back and consumption and corporate spending may thus pull back as well. So uh, really, we're watching both ed- uh, edges of that story, both sides of that story. Uh, but more broadly, we'd say um, the volatility that we've seen in the financial sector, we think probably has um, some room to run here. Uh, but one final point there, we don't yet see any systemic disruption or any scope for a systemic disruption to the U.S. or global banking system. We do think large cap banks here in the U.S. are still sound and much better. Thank you so much to Mona Mahajan of Edward Jones and also Greg Peters of PGEM. In a week full of big tech earnings, all the talk was really about generative AI, its potential, and also some of the potential risks. To take us through those, we welcome now Sam Palmisano. He was the chairman and CEO of IBM. He now is chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise. So, Sam, great to have you back with us on Wall Street Week. Let me put you back as either CEO of IBM or another huge corporation, publicly traded. Uh, what would you be doing right now today to prepare for or to, or to incorporate AI? Well, David, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And it, as I think about it, I, I would think about all the lessons I've learned in the past, either running IBM or, or if I was currently a CEO, what I've learned over the past 10 or 15 years. And that is that we faced these challenges before. There's always been these disruptive technologies to come along. They represent some phenomenal promise, but also they can be disruptive. There are a couple of different paths. I mean, I'll make some suggestions, but you could dismiss it. Um, you can wait and see, but then you know you learn. We learned in the last time that you can be left behind if you do that, and other leaders emerge in your peer group. Uh, another way to do it is let it just go. Like that would be the early days of the internet. Just let it run, and then the problem is then you have to clean it all up. You know, and that takes time. You lose some momentum, also costs you some money, and those sorts of things. But I would start with create a management system that takes advantage of these technologies in your strategy implement that company-wide. Uh, the benefit of starting there is you won't have the problems of the past with digitization in the internet. And plus, you can scale and integrate and learn a lot quicker once you get your footing and you know where you want to go to take your business. The other thing is that uh, that I'll add is these, these technologies are going to mature, and they will. I mean, there's a lot of innovation yet to come. As exciting as this is, there's a lot more to happen here, and it has to happen. There are gaps that need to be filled. Having said that, it becomes ubiquitous, which means it touches everybody in your workforce. So you have to think about the jobs, the nature of work, and how it changes, how you develop skills. And it's not not go out and hire three data scientists. You're going to have to train and educate your people across the entire enterprise. And the last one I would think, ask them to think about, or I would think about is culture. Culture is so, so important. You need to adopt ethical principles for AI. We see the issues today for companies that haven't done that. You need to be trusted in this space if you're an enterprise. But they're the things that a management system, think about learning of your employee base and the impact to them and your culture. One of the issues I suspect is productivity. I mean, AI, generative AI has the potential at least to really increase the productivity of a company, something that we're always looking for. How do you make sure that you take advantage of that as a CEO without letting it go too far? Well, that's exactly the point. You know, it's fundamentally what you need to do is I would say you need to think about the technology as a complement to what's going on today. So therefore, your knowledge worker can become an expert, not just an average knowledge worker. Or a teacher can become an expert teacher, not just a participant in teaching grammar or language, whatever it happens to be. So if you think about it that way, is that how do you complement 
the technology with the actual the the the, the worker, the knowledge worker in your organization. I think if you do that, you won't have all the uh, chaos that occurred historically. I mean, chaos is okay. We learned. I mean, so there's nothing wrong with learning, but let's take the learnings of the past and try to avoid those as we get into the future here. Uh, Sam, what is the role, if any, of the government in all this? There's a lot of talk about regulation. We already saw China come out with a draft set of regulations, basically saying yes, whatever you do with this generative AI, it's got to be consistent with our values, which is all the censorship that comes with that. So when it comes to U.S. government, Europe, India, what is the constructive role of government in, in really directing AI in constructive ways? Well, I think government does have a role, and we see what happens when government's late to get ahead of these kinds of issues. You see that today with the social media companies and the issues around data and data privacy. So there's clearly a role, but the challenge is, as, as we know and as we've learned, these regulations and sta standards uh, have to be global. I mean, standards will emerge over time that are global. That takes a long time. So in the interim, what does a regulator do? And that's, you've laid out the problem, David, that's where it gets complicated because there's different systems. There's, a, I'll call it the Chinese control system. There's the open system of the United States and let's say some of the West, but then Europe's somewhere in between. So how do you get global regulation that's consistent? And to do this regionally just won't work. It won't work because fundamentally these platforms are global by definition. They're open source software by definition. So I know regions think they can take control, but the technology moves so fast, they will really struggle in doing so, unless you completely shut the place down and you wall it off. And that has economic implications. So to me, the question is, in the interim, what do you do? And I think there's a role here for business leaders and companies. I think business leaders and companies can show the way. They could establish the guardrails, the principles, ethical transparency, and implement this themselves. And finally, Sam, this week we had some of the biggest tech companies reporting earnings. And uh, almost all the discussion was really about AI and generative AI and its yeah. potential. And there are people in the street, you know this right now, who are saying maybe this will give a new impetus to the tech sector generally. Uh, it had been such a growth sector for so long that it was waning just a little bit in the growth. Now they say, but this is a whole new wave. Do you think they're right? Well, it's definitely going to be a huge growth in innovation opportunities. There's no doubt about it. The question, though, David, is who emerges as the winner here? Uh, so I'll take you back a little bit in history. If I go back, say, 50 years of the tech industry, it's um, interesting to see these patterns of who emerges as the winner. Take client-server to cloud. Sam, thank you so much. It's always a treasure to have you back on Wall Street Week. That's Sam Palmasano, the former chairman and CEO of IBM. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. 
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're joined once again by our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thank you so much for being back with us. We had a lot of important economic data this week. We got the first quarter GDP numbers. We got personal spending. We got ECI. What was most important for you? David, I've been pointing to the ECI number because I think the labor market is the key to the inflation process because it only comes quarterly because it's the best of the numbers for measuring wage inflation because it includes benefits and uh, adjusts for changes in the composition of the labor force. And that number was pretty strong. That number's running at about 4.8% now, both on an annual basis and a quarterly basis. There's not really evidence that it is decelerating. The revision for last quarter was a little bit uh, upwards. And 4.8% labor cost inflation just does not go with 2% uh, underlying uh, inflation. So I think we've got a bit of a stagflationary problem uh, developing where we have a base inflation that's well above target. And as I've been saying for the last year and a half, I don't think that's going to get back to target without a meaningful slowdown uh, in the economy. That doesn't mean the Fed's objective should be to induce a slowdown. But if the Fed does what's necessary to uh, contain inflation, I think a slowdown is likely uh, to uh, come along. And the odds on that happening sometime in the next uh, 12 months, I think, are pretty good, perhaps 70 percent. So I think we're not looking at an easy uh, situation facing the Fed. Given these numbers, I think it's pretty clear that the Fed has to go ahead and move rates uh, in May. Given the emerging credit uh, problems, I think uh, June is very much an open question. So what I hope we'll see from the Fed is a move upwards by 25 basis points in May, followed by a commitment to monitoring both the activity and inflation figures on one hand and uh, the credit flow uh, issues which are leading of the economy on the other. 
So, Larry, there was a thought, not a hope, but a thought that perhaps some of the difficulties we had at Silicon Valley Bank, then Signature Bank, and now First Republic Bank might slow down the economy on its own so the Fed wouldn't have to go as far. We thought maybe these were behind us. We now still have issues that lurked up with First Republic. What do you make of the way that's being handled as opposed to the way Silicon Valley Bank was handled? Let me, let me just say first, David, that I... I'm very connected to people all over the financial sector, but I have no specific relationship of any kind that I know of uh, with First Republic uh, Bank. I'm surprised and disappointed that this situation has continued to linger as long as it has with the bank stock down 95% uh, percent and various other credit indicia of it in a problematic uh, direction. Look, the big banks and the government both have a strong stake in this situation being uh, contained and resolved. The big banks have deposits in First Republic uh, Bank in significant uh, quantity. They have a huge stake in the financial system staying stable. Uh, Larry, let's take a bit of a longer view here now about where we're headed globally with our economy. We had Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, give remarks at the Brookings Institution this week where he laid out what I took to be sort of a framework under the Biden administration where he wants to go with economic policy. What did you make of that speech? Jake is a very thoughtful uh, leader, and it's probably the most carefully intellectually developed exposition of the administration's philosophy that we have had uh, to date. And certainly he's right that the world has changed. He's right that China represents a new kind of challenge. He's right to emphasize after what we've seen in Europe with uh, oil, other things, uh, the importance of uh, resilience. But I was disappointed that the speech did not emphasize the central importance of importing low-priced goods. That is a substantial part of what determines the living standards of Americans. That is a substantial part of what determines the competitiveness of American producers. For example, we have 60,000 people working in the steel industry and 6 million people working in industries that use uh, steel. So when we raise the price of uh, steel, we are uh, hurting people. The Peterson Institute uh, estimated some time ago that trade reduced costs for consumers by a, more than a trillion dollars. And if we had removed our tariffs on other measures against China, it would have added 2% uh, to people's real incomes by reducing inflation uh, pressure. I think that the administration is much too quick to move to industrial policy strategies on grounds of resilience. Let me give you two examples. Uh, the Jones Act was the resilience policy of the 1920s. Let's have all our shipping 
be U.S. carriers. That's made the price of heating oil considerably higher in New England all year. That screwed up our efforts to help Puerto Rico after the hurricane because we didn't have adequate uh, supplies. We had a major infant formula problem in this country. That was related to by American policies that meant we couldn't turn quickly to uh, European uh, supply chains. So of course we're all for resilience, we're all for strong U.S. Uh, producers and strong U.S. Uh, businesses, but what I find missing in the approach is helping uh, consumers, which after all is the middle class and is central to how people feel they're doing. Larry, let's leave our audience on Wall Street here with a quick round of long, short, whether you're long or short certain issues and certain people. Let's start with President Biden's launch of his new re-election campaign. It happened this week. Are you long or short on it? I've, I'm long. I think that uh, the administration's got a lot that it can uh, run on, and frankly, its opposition is in very substantial disarray. Uh, what about uh, the head of the Bank of Japan, Mr. Weta? He had his first meeting this week and surprised some people about sort of putting off ultimate decisions about yield con- uh, curve control. Are you long or short on his premier? I think he's a cagey and shrewd uh, guy. Uh, any kind of peg, whether it's an exchange rate or an interest rate, is a hotel that's much easier to check into than to check out of. And I think by setting forth that study uh, mechanism, he is uh, beginning a process of orchestrating, uh, leaving a peg that probably uh, has outlived its purpose. And, and finally, we talk about the Fed a lot. We don't talk about Fed security very much. This week we had this remarkable incident where apparently some people who were apparently Russian purported to be President Zelensky of Ukraine and got Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, on the phone and had a fairly detailed discussion with him. You're long or short on security at the Federal Reserve. Oh, I'm short looking backwards that I'm long looking forward because I'm sure there's going to be a pretty thorough review of how that could have happened that's determined to make sure uh, that doesn't uh, happen again. Uh, that's kind of an embarrassing uh, uh, embarrassing moment. Uh, if there's any institution in the United States we want to be unconnable, uh, I would suggest that it's the Fed. But there are a lot of very dedicated people there, and I'm sure they'll get it fixed. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much. Always a pleasure. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, the richest man in the world gives New York a brand new gift from Tiffany's, and he spares no expense. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Finally, one more thought. All the glitters may not be gold, but some of it sure is. This week marked not one, but two milestones for luxury, and particularly for the largest luxury company in the world, LVMH, or more correctly, LVMH Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton. This week, the market cap of LVMH touched the $500 billion mark, making it the first European company to do that. 
run by the world's richest man, he's Bernard Arnault, who has added the names of some of the best-known luxury brands to the name of his company as he's acquired them. But one iconic luxury brand name didn't make it into the company's name. That is Tiffany, whose flagship store at 5th Avenue and 57th Street, Audrey Hepburn made iconic in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Don't you just love it? Love what? And that brings us to the second milestone of the week. When LVMH bought Tiffany's back in 2021 for $16 billion, a renovation of the Fifth Avenue store was already underway, requiring them to move all those jewels to a safe location, hoping to avoid the sort of thing that happened in the Italian job. What's happened to my truck? LVMH won't say how much it all costs, but it does include works by Basquiat, Damien Hirst, and Rashid Johnson, as well as a restaurant from Daniel Balud. So finally, you will be able to get, indeed, breakfast at Tiffany's. The transformation of what they now call the landmark Tiffany's store has been overseen by one of Mr. Arnaud's five children, Alexandra, who, it turns out, is going through a process with his father and his siblings, as Mr. Arnaud has restructured his company to redistribute the power among the five, with whom he has monthly power lunches, all in an effort to avoid that ugly succession process dramatized in the HBO series. I've always tried to do the best by my children because I love them. Have you thought about the possibility that your children are actually scared of you? Oh, f off. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.